Welcome to this episode of Sound Bites, a podcast series produced by the National Psoriasis Foundation, the nation's leading organization for individuals living with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. In each episode, someone who lives with psoriatic disease, a loved one, or an expert will share insights with you on living well. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to our podcast and join us every month at SoundBites for more insights on understanding, managing, and thriving with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. A number of people with psoriasis express confusion regarding symptoms that may or may not be related to psoriatic arthritis. We're here with Dr. Arthur Mandolin, a rheumatologist and associate professor of medicine with Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in the Division of Rheumatology in Chicago and a member of the National Psoriasis Foundation's Medical Board to help shed some light on psoriatic arthritis in relation to other forms of arthritis. Dr. Mandolin, to help provide framework for comparison, can you please talk about the key features and symptoms of psoriatic arthritis and why it's associated with people who have psoriasis? And furthermore, why they're at higher risk for the disease? Thanks for having me today. So psoriatic arthritis uh, is a form of inflammatory arthritis that is associated with skin psoriasis. About one-third of patients who have skin psoriasis will at some point during their lifetime develop psoriatic arthritis, usually within about the first 10 years of their skin disease. We don't know why some psoriasis patients develop psoriatic arthritis and others do not. We wish we did know, but, but we don't. We do know that just as skin psoriasis is an inflammatory condition of the skin, we believe that psoriatic arthritis is an inflammatory form of arthritis. The key features of psoriatic arthritis, as for most forms of inflammatory arthritis, are stiffness in the morning that lasts for more than 30 minutes, pain in the joints that's accompanied by swelling and oftentimes redness in the joints, and a general tendency for the joints uh, after you've had those first hour or so in the morning to actually get slightly better as they are used rather than worse during the course of a day. And what joints are typically affected by psoriatic arthritis? Difficult question to answer because psoriatic arthritis, unlike many other inflammatory forms of arthritis, has several different ways that it can present. Perhaps the most common form of psoriatic arthritis tends to strike the hands, and it tends to strike the middle knuckles of the fingers and the end knuckles of the fingers all the way out by the fingernails. That being said, there are certainly the possibility of any joint in the body being affected by psoriatic arthritis. There are some patients who have psoriatic arthritis that affects their spine, Uh, or their neck more so than it does the joints of the hands and the feet. And also the presence of enthesitis, an inflammation where the tendon attaches to the bone. Probably the most common place where that's seen is in the Achilles heel, where it inserts to the back of the heel, the calcaneus bone. Um, And then also there is the presence of dactylitis, which is the swelling of an entire digit, a fusiform or cigar-shaped swelling that involves not just the knuckles, but an entire toe or an entire finger. So it's really difficult to say for certain with psoriatic arthritis, which joints are most commonly affected. But if you're talking about the most common form of psoriatic arthritis, I would have to say that it's the middle knuckles and the fingernail knuckles of the hands. So let's talk about rheumatoid arthritis. Most people are familiar with rheumatoid arthritis and tend to fear that's what they have, especially if dactylitis is present. How do you distinguish it from psoriatic arthritis? 
that can be difficult because the most common form of psoriatic arthritis does have a lot of similarities to rheumatoid arthritis. Generally speaking, the main features that would make you think more towards psoriatic arthritis and less toward rheumatoid arthritis would be the presence of skin psoriasis. But we do have to be careful there because although 9 of 10 patients develop their skin disease first, about 1 out of 10 patients does develop the joint disease first and the skin only appears later. Another key feature is that psoriatic arthritis tends to be negative uh, when the blood is tested for rheumatoid arthritis. So there's a specific blood test called rheumatoid factor that we look for that helps us to diagnose rheumatoid arthritis. Like any blood test, that blood test is not perfect. Only about 80% of people who have rheumatoid arthritis have a positive rheumatoid factor. But the negativity of a rheumatoid factor is a hint that might suggest psoriatic arthritis with that caveat that about 2 of 10 rheumatoid arthritis patients will also be rheumatoid factor negative. You mentioned enthesitis and dactylitis and what joints tend to be affected by psoriatic arthritis. How do those features or symptoms differ from osteoarthritis? Osteoarthritis is a different form of arthritis in that we think of it classically as being more wear and tear. We now understand with more modern understandings about how the science of this works that there, there can be some inflammatory component to osteoarthritis. We now understand that there is more involved with cartilage biology and probably what's happening more so than just overuse is overuse in the context of someone whose cartilage biology is not able to withstand that overuse. Generally speaking, patients who have osteoarthritis will tend to have involvement, if it's in the hands, of the knuckles uh, near the fingernails and the bases of the thumbs where the thumb joins the palm will often be the most uh, or first involved joints in osteoarthritis of the hand. Another key feature of osteoarthritis in contrast to inflammatory forms of arthritis is that while inflammatory arthritis will often have more than 30 minutes of tightness and stiffness first thing in the morning, osteoarthritis tends to have 30 minutes or less of stiffness first thing in the morning. Additionally, where the inflammation or enlargement of inflammatory arthritis, that uh, tissue swelling is soft, squishy, and mushy, and doughy in character, the enlargement that happens in some joints with osteoarthritis is literally an overgrowth of bone. So it is rock hard bony enlargement rather than puffy, smushy swelling. The quick rule of thumb there is that osteoarthritis tends to add bone to an affected joint. Rheumatoid arthritis tends to subtract bone from an affected joint, and psoriatic arthritis tends to do both of those things. Another area that often causes confusion is gout. Some people are not sure why they have sudden, intense pain, especially when they hurt all the time. What is gout, and how does it differ from psoriatic arthritis? Gout is a completely different situation. Uh, It's more of a biochemical error than an arthritic disease, although gout is a form of arthritis. Gout is what we call a crystalline arthropathy, 
So what this means is that there is a biochemical waste product that is building up in the body. And in the case of gout specifically, we're talking about uric acid. Uric acid is a natural breakdown product that uh, builds up in the body when proteins are being digested. And when this uric acid is present in excess amounts in the serum of the blood, it can crystallize in the body tissues and it tends to favor areas of the body that are cooler. The crystals can form more easily in areas of the body that are cooler. And that is why gout, we believe, tends to form more frequently in the feet and most often in the joints uh, of the big toes, right where the big toe joins into the ball of the foot. So this crystalline overburden is part of what makes gout happen. And it's therefore important to treat gout differently from other forms of inflammation. Gout does have a large inflammatory component, but it is different from the classical inflammatory forms of arthritis in that it's being set off by the presence of these chemicals, these crystals, this biological um, waste product that's building up in the body. So the treatment of gout is directed much more strongly toward letting the body process or stop producing so much of this uh, excess biochemical waste product, uric acid. And what age is the typical onset for psoriatic arthritis, osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and gout? Do any of these diseases occur at any age, or is there a typical age for onset? Most of these diseases can occur at just about any age. Obviously, it would be very unusual for a child to have osteoarthritis because there is some component of wear and tear, although the disease is more complex than wear and tear alone. Uh, It would also be very unusual for a child to have gout. Rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis certainly can occur in children. Classically, rheumatoid arthritis occurs in about the fourth decade of life, about between the ages of 40 and 50. Psoriatic arthritis can strike a little bit earlier, sometimes as early as the 20s or 30s, um, but none of these things are hard and fast, and it's more important to be looking at the features of the arthritis, uh, although the age of the patient can give you some clues. And how about sex? Are there any prevalence differences for these diseases between men and women? And does one disease affect men more than women, or are they equal opportunity diseases? Rheumatoid arthritis generally affects women more often than it does men, although there are many men out there with rheumatoid arthritis. Gout tends to affect men more often than women, uh, although there are many women out there with gout. And in that instance, for reasons we don't fully understand, it seems that the, the female hormones are somewhat protective against gout so that women who are through menopause are just as likely as men of that age to have gout. But women who are still having menstrual cycles are much less likely to have gout than men of that age. Uh, Psoriatic arthritis is a pretty equal opportunity disease, men and women affected uh, approximately equally. And given your responses, I'm curious, is it possible to have psoriatic arthritis and other forms of arthritis or gout at the same time? It certainly is. Because gout, as I had mentioned earlier, works in a biochemically different way than either rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, a person clearly can have psoriatic arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, and gout at the same time. Likewise, because we all get older, our birthday cakes only gain candles and don't lose candles, we can all develop osteoarthritis over and above whatever other form of arthritis we may have developed during our lifetime. 
In terms of specifically psoriatic arthritis versus rheumatoid arthritis, there it gets kind of tricky because the most common form of psoriatic arthritis does have many similarities to rheumatoid arthritis. And it's often difficult in such a patient to definitively say which form of arthritis that they have or to definitively say that they would have both forms of arthritis. Generally speaking, I have not diagnosed a person with both psoriatic arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. And in the case of a patient who has a relatively mixed picture, I've sort of picked the one of the two that seems more dominant. And then I'll describe in my notes that they may have features that are suggestive of additional complications or, or other forms of arthritis. But generally speaking, I will not diagnose a patient with both psoriatic and rheumatoid arthritis. That's interesting. Are some of the symptoms or features reversible? In other words, if you treat the disease, will the joint pain or destruction go away? Generally speaking, inflammatory forms of arthritis, although the pain, the swelling, the symptoms that are systemic through the whole body do go away with good treatment. And likewise, gouty flares can be very well controlled with good treatment. And indeed, with uh, osteoarthritis, in many patients with the right medication, pain can be controlled quite well. It's important to recognize that in all of these forms of arthritis, uh, bony damage is something that is very difficult to heal. There are quite a number of documented cases of gouty damage when the gout becomes extremely well controlled, reversing to some degree or healing to some degree. As a general rule, rheumatoid and psoriatic damage do not heal uh, very well, if at all. In terms of guiding our choices for therapy, we generally consider that rheumatoid damage and psoriatic damage are permanent, and that we find leads us in the right direction, puts us in the right headspace in terms of making judgment calls when to be more aggressive with medication, when the patient needs a stronger drug. We are well served and the patient is well served if we run our thought processes with the assumption that rheumatoid and psoriatic damage will not be reversed. Uh, likewise, osteoarthritic damage, as we only pile on the years, generally does not reverse over time. I see. That's why it's probably really important to get diagnosed early. Is there a way to screen for psoriatic arthritis like you screen for other diseases? The big problem, of course, with psoriatic arthritis is that there isn't a blood test. Part of the response to your question depends on what exactly you mean by screening. So if you're looking at a person who doesn't currently have symptoms and screening them for their future risk of psoriatic arthritis, the short answer is no. There really isn't a good screening tool for that. If you're talking about a person who's begun to have symptoms, who does have some joint pain, who does have some swelling, and you're looking to screen that person for what type of arthritis they might have, there again, because the, there is no good blood testing for psoriatic arthritis, there aren't excellent screening methods available right now. We are hoping for that in the future. And indeed, um, this, the National Psoriasis Foundation is currently focusing their grant funding on promoting research in exactly this avenue. The, the goal of the NPF is to find that test, find that screening tool that will help us to diagnose psoriatic arthritis more definitively in the future. Until we get to that wonderful day, 
right now, psoriatic arthritis is a clinical diagnosis, which in short means that you have psoriatic arthritis when you've seen an expert who knows what psoriatic arthritis looks for, and that doctor tells you you have, you have psoriatic arthritis. So if someone were to come into your office with joint pain in the lower back and morning stiffness, what would your next steps be to help diagnose why the joint pain is occurring? Low back pain, unfortunately, is the common cold of the musculoskeletal world, and there are many reasons why a person might have low back pain. One of the things that I do first in trying to tease out the cause of low back pain is to try to figure out whether that low back pain has an inflammatory character or a non-inflammatory character. Non-inflammatory low back pain might be brought on by overuse or trauma, the patient who was moving furniture over the weekend and now comes in with back pain, the patient who decided uh, now that the weather is getting nicer to go out and start training for the marathon and now is coming in with back pain, the patient who fell off their bicycle or down the steps and now is coming in with back pain. These uh, types of things, these trigger events would more likely lead you away from an inflammatory cause of back pain. Back pain that is inflammatory in nature, on the other hand, tends to have many of the inflammatory features that we already spoke about with the other inflammatory forms of arthritis. So it tends to be worse in the morning. It tends to get slightly better as the day goes on. And whereas you would expect the back pain from an injury or a trauma to get worse and worse and worse as the injured back is used during the course of a day, you would perhaps uh, expect that inflammatory back pain, like other inflammatory forms of arthritis, would get better with gentle use during the day. And oftentimes, patients who have inflammatory back pain will tell you that they are the one who likes to get up and keep moving during the day because that prevents them from retightening, re-stiffening, actually makes their back pain better rather than worse. Back pain can be very difficult to diagnose, but I think those are some of the major features that would lead you to that first step of inflammatory versus non-inflammatory back pain. So if a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis is made, what do you as a rheumatologist do next? The first thing that I do is to make sure that the patient has contact with a good dermatologist. We have to acknowledge that psoriatic arthritis is the combination in almost all patients of both skin disease and joint disease. And although there may be some dermatologists out there who have a special interest in and maybe extra experience and training in psoriatic arthritis, most dermatologists are going to focus as they should on the psoriasis. Similarly, Most rheumatologists, although there may be some out there that have a special interest in psoriatic arthritis that may have extra experience, extra training in the treatment of the skin disease, most rheumatologists are going to appropriately focus on the joints and not have a good understanding of how the skin is treated. So I'm strongly a proponent of having a patient with psoriatic arthritis have regular visits with both their dermatologist and their rheumatologist so that they can work together as a team to uh, to get the patient uh, to the best possible condition, both in terms of the skin and the joints. Once you've got that medical team in place, the next thing is to get the patient back to function, back to comfort, back to work. Oftentimes, that quick relief is done in terms of giving a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory which would be something like ibuprofen or naproxen or prescription-only drugs that are in the ibuprofen-naproxen family, as I call it. 
Sometimes people do need to use short bursts of steroids, uh, cortisone-based medications. Some patients end up using both. And there are, of course, different uh, types of medical comorbidities, other diseases that the patient may have or other features of the patient's health that may drive the doctor toward or, or away from the non-steroidals or toward or away from the steroidal drugs. But generally speaking, we need to get this quick control to get the patient back to their life. And then over time, we then need to transition from this short-term treatment into long-term treatment. So short-term treatments start working quickly, get the patient back to their life as quickly as we can. But the short-term treatments can, in many cases, tend to have more side effects in the long run. So the medium-term goal then becomes to get the patient onto a medication that can be taken if necessary, lifelong, that has a side effect profile that is generally considered tolerable in the long term. And what's done then over the next couple of visits is to slowly transition the patient from their quick relief rescue medication to a long-term medication, which will help them in the long run and is safer to take in the long term. It's also important to mention that these long-term medications are better at protecting against future bone damage than are the short-term medications, which are essentially useless for that purpose. So it's very important for the patient, especially for that patient who may have on their own discovered a short-term fix that works day in and day out, like in some cases ibuprofen or naproxen or drugs of that type. It is important to get in contact with a doctor. Those types of medications, while they will provide the quick fix and they will remove symptoms or blunt symptoms in the short term, are not protecting the patient in the long term. And we do need to have both sides of that discussion at every visit. We hear a lot of patients express fear about going on a biologic. How do you respond as a practitioner to those fears? It's important to acknowledge those fears, but also important to make sure that there's a discussion with the patient wherein you gauge what the exact nature of the patient's fears are. Uh, Are they fearful because of a family history? Are they fearful because of something they've heard or read? Are they fearful because of something in their own history, which may truly make them less favorable in terms of a biologic treatment candidate? Or are they simply reading too much Google and uh, presuming the worst when that may not really be the truth? So it is important to have a discussion with the patient and to judge to what degree the patient's fears are justified, to judge whether there's something in the patient's personal or family history that makes those fears justified in their specific case or that may alter their candidacy for going on biologic therapy. It's also important to recognize that not every patient will need biologic therapy right from the outset. Some certainly may be candidates right from day one, but many might not be. And many patients might not come away from the doctor's office. In fact, many times will not come away from the doctor's office at visit number one with a prescription for a biologic. So that should not be a reason to avoid seeing the doctor. Um, There are plenty of things in most cases that can be done without going to a biologic. And in many cases, biologics are given only when needed as an escalation from an initial therapy. So in November, the American College of Rheumatology released new treatment guidelines for psoriatic arthritis. Can you indicate how those guidelines now impact treatment choices? The American College of Rheumatology guidelines that were released I think uh, are helpful for the psoriatic arthritis community 
uh, in that they specify the types of medications that we know are helpful for psoriatic arthritis. They do have some suggestion in terms of perhaps what order in which to try these medications. And in the cases where there is evidence available in the medical literature, the guidelines will give you pointers or or, uh, citations letting you know where to go to look for those types of research that might suggest why one medication might be tried first over a different one. Uh, And generally speaking, when we say that, we're talking about not specific drugs uh, like a particular brand name, but classes of drugs, types of drugs. So there are, I believe, three strong recommendations for patients who have comorbid inflammatory bowel disease, not just IBS, inflammatory bowel syndrome, but full-blown inflammatory bowel disease, there are three strong recommendations for that specific um, subtype of patients who have both psoriatic arthritis and inflammatory bowel disease. There's one specific very strong recommendation for patients who have psoriatic arthritis and comorbid diabetes. And the only strong recommendation that was given for psoriatic arthritis in general without regard to having other comorbid medical conditions was to help the patient stop smoking. One more thing to acknowledge about the guidelines is that uh, it's very specifically stated in the guidelines right up front that the guidelines were not intended to be used to exclude a patient from a treatment solely because the guidelines suggest B over A. Because the guidelines are written in general for the population of humans as a whole, and the doctor is making recommendations, having seen one individual patient, examined that patient, known their medical history, and chosen something tailored to that patient. Do lifestyle changes fit in as part of the treatment plan, or can lifestyle changes make a difference or prevent psoriatic arthritis from developing? As far as we know, there isn't a lifestyle change that would prevent psoriatic arthritis or psoriatic skin disease. Certainly, lifestyle changes are something that we could ask our patients to try. I generally tell patients when I get this question that being healthy helps your whole body be healthy, but we don't have a particular lifestyle change or a particular diet, for example, that we know helps all patients with psoriatic arthritis. Each individual patient who comes in and tells me, oh, I've tried this or I've tried that and seems to feel some improvement, the very next patient who comes in the door may say, oh, I tried that same thing and it was useless for me. So there isn't any one specific lifestyle change. There isn't any one specific diet change that we know of that is going to universally and reliably help all patients with psoriatic disease, whether that be skin or joints. So when I get asked this question by my patients, what I tell them is if you want to try some lifestyle changes that seem to be reasonable for overall health, you can do that. I can't specifically recommend one lifestyle change over another because it's going to be very individualized and each patient has to find for themselves whatever diet or lifestyle change works for them. But we can't recommend any particular lifestyle change, any particular diet change, uh, other than, as I mentioned a moment ago, to um, certainly stop smoking if you are a smoker. And if you are not a smoker, don't start. What would you say to the person who's thinking their aches and pains are just associated with getting older? What are some red flags for them to seek help from a specialist such as yourself? Joint pain certainly can happen as we get older. 
generally speaking, the joint pains that are associated with aging will be achiness and stiffness that will happen for less than 30 minutes in the morning. And then they may let go of you a little bit for the rest of the day. Those types of aches and pains that are associated with getting older are associated with a, a joint or a set of joints that is, for lack of a better term, worn out. Which means, of course, that as you use that area more and more, you'll be uncomfortable, unfortunately, more and more. Again, with the caveat that I mentioned earlier, that we now understand that wear and tear, osteoarthritis, is more than just wear and tear. But when people have stiffness that lasts for more than 30 minutes first thing in the morning, when people have stiffness and pain that's accompanied by swelling or redness of the joint, uh, stiffness of the joint, loss of range of motion of a joint, those types of things might not be just aging. And those types of things would lead you to want to seek specialty care. Um, so tightness that lasts for more than 30 minutes and pains that are accompanied by swelling and pains that get better instead of worse with use. And what do you recommend to the person who has limited access to a rheumatologist? Say they live in a rural area where appointments are few due to lack of rheumatologists. That's a difficult question because we have a workforce issue in rheumatology. And right now, there's no signs on the horizon that our workforce issue is going to be getting any better in the next uh, couple of years. Probably the best thing to do would be to see if you could find a dermatologist who has an interest in psoriatic arthritis who may be able to guide you at least to some degree or to guide you to where you might find a rheumatologist, even if travel might be involved, uh, who might be able to get you in more quickly than your area where maybe the rheumatologists are overburdened. It's probably also true in reverse, that if you find yourself in an area where there aren't a lot of dermatologists, if you could find a rheumatologist who is interested in psoriatic disease, they may be able to help you at least partially uh, or guide you towards someone who is perhaps uh, less burdened in terms of their, their wait time. My gut tells me that my colleagues, both in dermatology and in rheumatology, who are in rural areas will be aware of this problem. And most of them will have done something to try to address the issue by sort of cross-training themselves um, to be a little more helpful uh, in the short term while the patient is locating a practitioner for the long term. Great. And what are some of the more interesting areas where research is being conducted in psoriatic arthritis? We are beginning to understand in psoriatic arthritis, and I think I can be brave enough to even say we've established it now in rheumatoid arthritis, that developing a target, measuring the disease with some sort of a number at every visit, and then treating toward a target number we know is going to cause better outcomes in rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm confident that we're going to move in that direction in psoriatic arthritis. So I think that's an important area of the research to determine how should we be measuring psoriatic disease activity? What should the goals of treatment be? What types of numerical values should we be aiming for that are going to put the patient in the best possible position in terms of a long-term outcome? Clearly, the research that I mentioned earlier that's being uh, partially funded by the National Psoriasis Foundation in terms of getting us that magical blood test that finally will tell us who's at risk for psoriatic arthritis or who we can definitively say does indeed have psoriatic arthritis 
that will absolutely be key once we can get that research completed and get that blood test or whatever type of test it's going to be to the market. I think once we have those types of information, um, that will help us to inform our treatment decisions and get our patients where they need to go faster. So in closing, what key messages would you like to pass along to people who have psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis? I think the important thing is that both skin psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis are diseases that should not be ignored. They are diseases that are treatable in many, many cases. They are diseases that do require, in most cases, two specialists, both a skin specialist, a dermatologist, and a joint specialist, a rheumatologist. And patients owe it to themselves to be continuously monitored by these specialists and be brought up to speed with what the current state of knowledge is so that they can always be treated in the best possible, most modern way possible uh, without simply thinking that they need to suffer. No one with psoriatic disease, whether it be skin, joints, or both, should think to themselves that this is simply their lot in life and nothing can be done. Even if the patient is, as we had alluded to in an earlier question, somewhat apprehensive or fearful about certain particular types of treatment, that's not a reason not to go to a doctor. That's not a reason not to be seen. I think it's important to have that discussion and to find out to what degree those types of fears might be overblown or to what degree those types of fears might be justified and to be acting based on knowledge rather than based on gut and to be treated based on the most modern science we have available rather than whatever seems to work over the counter. And what about for those who have psoriasis but don't have psoriatic arthritis now? What should they be watching for? People who have skin psoriasis now but do not currently have psoriatic arthritis should be aware that it can be up to 10 years before the joint disease begins. And that's not to say that they need to be worrying and losing sleep for the next 10 years, but rather that they simply need to remain vigilant. And they need to just be aware that if they should develop some type of joint pain, particularly if it's joint pain that's accompanied by swelling, if it's joint pain that's worse in the morning, it gets better during the day, particularly if it's joint pain that gets better with gentle use of the affected joint instead of worse with gentle use of the affected joint. Those are the little warning signs that would lead that person with skin psoriasis to get themselves into a rheumatologist to be examined for possible psoriatic arthritis. Because while no one wants to get a diagnosis, you want to get that diagnosis earlier rather than later, because we do know that getting diagnosed early and getting treated early are going to cause a better outcome in the long term. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Mandolin, for being here with us and talking about psoriatic arthritis. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. May is psoriatic arthritis, also known as PSA, Action Month. All month, the National Psoriasis Foundation will highlight educational opportunities such as today's podcast with Dr. Mandolin and the importance of early diagnosis and proper treatment. It is possible to live life with less pain and avoid permanent bone and joint damage. Learn how others thrive with this disease and what you can do. You can order a PSA kit with a flare tracker or make a donation to help support the foundation's effort to fund discovery of a PSA diagnostic test. Learn what's possible at psoriasis.org forward slash PSA hyphen action hyphen month. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Sound Bites for people with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. 
If you or someone you love has ever struggled with psoriatic disease, our hope is that through this series, you'll gain information to help you lead a healthier life and inspire you to look to the future. Please join us in a couple weeks for another inspiring podcast. You can find this or all future episodes of Soundbites on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, and the National Psoriasis Foundation webpage. To learn more about this topic or others, please visit psoriasis.org or contact us with your questions or comments by email at podcast at psoriasis.org.